0: Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host.
1: Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I'm not Justin Burke, but I'm Chris the Cheemanchu, and I'm with Justin Burke tonight and our producer, Dr. Edward Cordy. Our guest tonight is Dr. Ronnie Levin, here to discuss pediatric ophthalmology. But first, let's remind you about the show.
2: We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the field to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And tonight we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Ronnie Levin. Dr. Levin is an assistant professor of ophthalmology and pediatrics at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. She serves as the director of medical student education in ophthalmology at her medical school and she's a member of the American Academy of Ophthalmology Virtual Medical Student Education Committee, where she designs innovative, interactive educational content and she emphasizes humanistic and compassionate patient care serving as a faculty advisor for the Gold Humanism Honor Society. She was recently honored with the Real World Ophthalmology Outstanding Humanitarian Award for her work providing medical and surgical eye care for underserved communities. Today, Dr. Levin teaches us tips for the pediatric eye exam, common pediatric eye diseases including strabismus and amblyopia. These are diagnoses you do not want to miss.
1: Edward, uh, as our producer, would you say you had a clear vision for the episode?
2: I think I think the vision was clear, and I just hope the episode goes global.
1: That sounds good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> welcome, Dr. Levin. Thank you so much for coming to the show. We are extremely excited to have you. Because we're an informal group, let me start by saying, is, is it okay if we call you Ronnie through the show?
3: Yes, that's fine.
0: Okay, well, welcome to the Cribsiders. Yes, welcome.
3: Thank you for having me today.
0: We are very fortunate to have you to talk about some general pediatric ophthalmology topics. But before we really dive into some content, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better. And so can I ask, can you start by just giving us a one-liner to describe yourself so the audience can know a little bit more about you?
3: Yes. Hi, my name is Ronnie Levin. I am a pediatric ophthalmologist in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm also a medical educator. I'm a mama of two little kiddos, a two-year-old, a five-year-old, and I also have a golden retriever puppy named Sky
1: sky it's a full house full house <laughs> amazing so you know my favorite question usually when i we have a guest on the show is i ask what is your favorite failure and what did you learn
3: from it that is an excellent question so i actually failed my very first anatomy exam in medical school And after being at the top of my class throughout high school and college and crushing every exam, I was completely devastated to fail an exam for the first time in my entire life. So I initially doubted my self-worth and whether I can actually make it through medical school or if I even belong there and i quickly learned that medical training was a whole new ball game so i breezed through school before but now suddenly my peers were all valedictorians and they all had perfect standardized scores so my school advisor was so encouraging she paired me with a classmate shout out to melissa who helped me and she learned taught me how to study And I eventually developed new study strategies. I passed anatomy. Eventually, I excelled in my studies. And eventually, I matched at my top choice ophthalmology residency program. So, you know, this was my very first major failure. But it taught me that education is really a team approach. So my classmates and I studied in groups. We would all support, uplift, and encourage each other. And my takeaway advice for trainees, students, residents would be just as my daughter, who's my very wise kindergartner says, teamwork makes the dream work. So medical training can be challenging, but it's important to learn to ask for help when you need it and also to lean on your peers for support and advice.
0: I love that. I've med school memories of working together, of the, the teamwork, and it's nice. And I also very much bombed my first anatomy test so that
3: Oh good uh, so uh, I'm not alone.
0: Close to home yeah.
1: Well, what close I really like home. about the way you 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 talked about it is I think a lot of people may say oh you know I failed that that exam but you know I had perseverance and I worked really hard and I got better but your takeaway was teamwork and I I love I love the fact that you have the way you, that you you brought that up so
3: Yeah I think it's super important and you know all throughout medical training we leaned on our co-residents so my My co-residents, I'm still in touch with them. One of them, you know, I talk to her almost every day. We have parallel lives. We have kids that are the same age. And so I think, you know, there's this sense in medicine of it being, you know, competitive or the students that do really well, or we call them the gunners. But I think that, you know, really working together as a team to try to uplift each other and really get everyone through it. You know, our goal should be for everyone, you know, all your peers to take great care of patients and, you know, to be excellent. So you got to lift each other up.
0: Yeah. And for a lot of our listeners, our trainees, you know, our students or residents, do you have, uh, what's the best advice that you, you could give some of these trainees who are going through kind of a tough time right now?
3: So I think that it's always important, you know, you have hardships in medicine, but it's always important to be humble and to be kind. And throughout my career, I had various role models and mentors that made a lifelong impact on me. So, you know, I'll just name a couple of them. So Dr. Albert Ali, he's an ophthalmologist from a small town in Pennsylvania And I joined him starting in medical school on various medical missions in Central and South America. And he really treated every patient with kindness and respect. And he taught me about the kind of physician that I would like to become. Another, you know, example is Dr. David Guyton. So he was um, the director of my fellowship program. He is a world-renowned strabismus specialist. So he's actually famous not just for all of his patents and inventions and being a brilliant physician and surgeon. He actually comes from a family of ten ophthalmologists. Um, so wow. I think they were in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most physicians in one family. Wow. Um, so ten physicians. Sorry, he's the only ophthalmologist. All <laughs> different medical fields, <laughs> it, and his father. Sorry, not ten ophthalmologists. Ten physicians. Still impressive. His, still impressive. Still, impressive. still yeah. impressive. His father, actually, I don't know if you guys have Guyton's Physiology. Or you oh yeah. Know. That was his dad, and so from what I understand, he had some illness. I think it might have been polio and was unable to become a surgeon. And instead, he wrote this textbook, this physiology textbook, and that the proceeds made it, his 10 kids made it through medical school. But anyway, you know, despite being so famous, people would fly from all over the world to have this world-famous surgeon operate on him. And despite his fame and accomplishments, I was always impressed by how humble and kind he was he would go out of his way to correctly pronounce every patient's name and to get to know them on a personal level. And so it's really important to be, you know, to be kind. And, you know, to, that helps you connect with your patients.
0: Great advice for trainees. This has been great. And I'm excited to to dive into some content. So let's, let's, uh, let's start with our first case. Let's do it.
1: Am I, um, am I reading it? or are you so reading our this? First ca-
0: yeah. Why don't, yeah, you know, you, you do it, Chris. <laughs> oh, People just okay. My voice. Let's hear that, that deep, <laughs> That deep timber of uh, Dr. Chris the Chu Manchu.
1: Well, you know, I, I didn't write these these cases. It was you know, the great Ed recorder who couldn't be with us tonight as we're recording. But so he's the one who came up with these names. So I apologize in advance. So Amber Lopia is a four month old child who presents to kashi Children's Center for Well Child Care. She was born at 38 weeks via vaginal delivery, weighed six pounds, 11 ounces, and had no complications during birth. While you were doing your normal four month exam, you noticed that. Her red reflex in the right eye is not present and instead looks whitish. So before we sort of get into this case, can you help us sort of define some of the terms that were sort of, so they're all on the same page?
3: Yeah, um, absolutely. So you mentioned the term, the red reflex. So the red reflex is actually the most important screening tool for infants and children, and it requires no patient participation. You can do this on even newborn infants and children. So what you do, use a direct ophthalmoscope, and you hold it to view both eyes simultaneously. So this is important. You should look at both eyes simultaneously about two to three feet away from the patient. Now, this is very different from using the direct ophthalmoscope to try to look at the retina and the optic nerve. So you're actually, instead of getting really close to the patient's face, you're two to three feet away. And you want to make sure that those red reflexes are symmetric. And it actually represents the reflection of the retina through a clear pupillary axis. So if you see distortions or a change in the color, for example, that the red reflex in this case is not present, we call that leukocoria. So a white red reflex is actually called leukocoria.
0: And what are we checking for the red reflex? Like what are some of the things that would present with an abnormal color or leukocoria?
3: So there's actually a number of things that could cause leukocoria. So, you know, for the purpose of the board exams, I always tell, you know, my medical students and residents, you have to think first of the thing that could kill you, right, or blind you in in the case of ophthalmology, right? So one of the most serious things that could cause leukocoria is retinoblastoma. So this is actually a tumor the most common um, ocular tumor in children. And unfortunately, it can be very serious. So the last few cases of leukocoria that I've seen from retinoblastoma, you know, was very advanced, had already spread into the CSF. And unfortunately, I've seen several children that have passed from, you know, disseminated retinoblastoma. So, that's a very serious cause of leukocoria that you do not want to miss. However, there are other causes of leukocoria as well. So, anything along the visual axis. So, for example, you know, corneal opacities, pediatric cataract is, you know, much more common than retinal tumors. There are congenital malformations, retinopathy of prematurity infections. So, you think about torch infections, infections of the retina. And then, you know, there's more benign conditions that are much more common that can cause an, an abnormal red reflex or an altered red reflex. Even things like strabismus or anisomatropia, which is a fancy word for two different refractive errors between the two eyes, can cause an asymmetry in the red reflex. So it's not always necessarily... You know, retinoblastoma—not necessarily always something super pathologic, but it can be—and so that's why it's such an important thing that you do not want to miss. And one thing that that you know struck me when you presented this case, you said it was a four-month-old that didn't have a red reflex. So four months old is way too late to be presenting. So I actually got called yesterday to the newborn nursery. And it was a child that, you know, the, the pediatricians at birth noticed that the sibling had a history of a, the congenital cataract. And they called me in and they said, hey, can you double check this exam? So this should be something that is crucial to every single pediatric visit. So the newborn nursery... As soon as a child is born, you want to check the red reflex, right, on every well-child visit. So four months, you know, this child probably has been in for several visits, and so – you know, either this is a new case of leukocoria, which could have developed, or it was something that had been missed. And and I've had several, you know, very astute, observant pediatricians and pediatric residents that pick up leukocoria. I'm always so impressed when they send them in, because you can really save a child's, not just their vision, but their life in the case of a tumor.
1: So you're saying that, you know, four months is a little late to to present, like, what what is the the peak age we normally see these things. I mean, I remember doing a lot of red reflexes when I worked in Newborn Nursery. I mean, is this the bulk of the times that we we catch this? And then this sort of four-month case is more of a, you know, uncommon thing?
3: Yeah. So in this case, I'm would assume that it, it could be presenting at four months. So, you know, in, in the case of something like a pediatric cataract or something that was congenital, like a retinopathy of prematurity or an infection that would have been present, you know, at birth or close to birth, whereas, you know, this child presenting at four months, if the pediatrician was checking the red reflex was normal and all of a sudden they developed loss of a red reflex, that would be super concerning. I and mean, it could be something like, you know, a tumor or retinoblastoma.
0: And as far as when we see a concerning finding on the red reflex, what's the next step? Is it just a knee-jerk referral to ophthalmology? Is this a routine referral? Is this urgent? And what are kind of the next steps when you see a patient that has an abnormal red reflex?
3: So as the pediatrician, there are some things that you would check when you're examining the patient. So every new patient, you're checking red reflex. You're also checking visual acuity. So in a newborn infant, that visual acuity maybe blinks to light. So you're going to shine the light in each eye right? And does the patient blink to light? It's not really until about, you know, three to six months that that patient can fix and follow on an object. And then it's not really until they're about age two or three that they can match pictures. And usually around five, they can do their letter matching. So you always want to check visual acuity in each eye separately. Right? So, occlude one eye, check the visual acuity. One very important piece of information when you're checking visual acuity is actually objection to occlusion. And what that means is that when you cover one eye in the child, you know, they're looking around, they're fixing and following. When you cover the other eye, they start crying, they move, they try to get around your hand. They're objecting to occluding one eye. And that means that they're upset because they can't see with that eye. And that's a sign of poor vision. So, objection to occlusion is actually a physical exam finding, right? So, you know, as the pediatrician, you're checking visual acuity. You're checking that red reflex, like we talked about, two to three feet away with your direct ophthalmoscope, looking at both eyes simultaneously. Other things that you want to check are the pupils, right? Are the pupils reacting properly to light? Are they equal? Are they symmetric? Are there any external findings, And then, you know, lastly, you can check the eye movements, the motility. So I, as a pediatric ophthalmologist and, you know, many of the listeners, your pediatricians, pediatric residents, medical students interested in pediatrics, I keep a whole bunch of toys. So I don't know about you guys, but I have a whole cart. You know, I've got toys, I've got puppets, I've got flashing lights. You got to keep their attention. And you can use those lights and objects to check the motility. So you're moving the objects around, watching how they're tracking, right? So, should be checking those things on every patient and and those are you know exam findings that are pretty quick, they can be incorporated into every well child check, so you know it takes but thirty seconds to use your direct ophthalmoscope, check that red reflex, quickly check the vision, quickly check the pupils, you know do a quick external exam, and then you can move on to the next step of your exam
1: so say say we do have an exam finding that's abnormal. Like, what do we do then? Is there an urgency? Do I need to say, you know, we need to get you to a pediatric ophthalmologist now because this is really, really bad? Or is this like, all right, you know, maybe I just didn't do it right. Maybe I'll wait till the morning. I'll repeat my exam. And like, what what's the urgency that I have to worry about here?
3: So I never mind getting consults for these patients. If you're not quite sure about the red reflex being symmetric, always give your local friendly pediatric ophthalmologist a call. We're happy to take a look. If you as the pediatrician, you know, feel strongly that you really see leukocoria and that the red reflex looks abnormal and that it's whitish, that's very urgent. So I, you know, want to get the patient in within the next few days or within a week. If it's more of a dull red reflex that could be, you know, from strabismus or refractive error, that's something that could be, you know, within several weeks to a month. One example that you know that I'll give you of some of the more benign things that can cause an asymmetric red root re- red reflex is actually refractive errors. So the way you know many people, parents, and you know even pediatricians that come and join me in clinic say, "How in the world can you figure out the glasses prescription on a two-year-old?" Right. So a two-year-old is coming in. I don't know if Justin or Chris, if you guys wear glasses, but it, when you go into your ophthalmologist, they're putting you in front of this machine called the foreopter. They say, "Which is better, one or two. You cannot, a two-year-old can't do that, right? They don't understand what you're talking about. So how in the world do you check glasses in kids? So we use a tool called retinoscopy. So retinoscopy, a retinoscope is a little instrument. It looks kind of like the direct ophthalmoscope. And we actually shine the light and we're getting the red reflex. And then we add plus lenses or minus lenses until we neutralize the red reflex. And that's how I figure out precisely and exactly what the prescription is and what prescription the child needs. So the red reflex is something that I use as a pediatric ophthalmologist to figure out the glasses. So just, you know, just to give you context, if you have a very dull red reflex, so for example, let's say I have a patient who's highly myopic or nearsighted. They're a minus 10, their red reflex is going to be very dull. And I'm going to hold up lenses until I neutralize and get a bright red reflex. So In fact, refractive errors or asymmetric refractive errors can cause a dull red reflex. Another, you know, much more common thing that we see is strabismus. And we'll, you know, get into this a little bit later. We'll talk more about strabismus. But strabismus is a misalignment of the eyes, right? So when a patient is looking at you and you're checking the red reflex, you're assuming that you're getting a bright red reflex right at the back of the eye, in the center of the eye, in the macula. If the eyes are crossed, if they're turned in or if they're turned out, that red reflex is going to be dull because you're shining the light off the peripheral retina, not the center of the retina. And so strabismus, misalignment of the eye can cause an asymmetry in the red reflex. And there was this big campaign that came out when I was a pediatric ophthalmology fellow. There was a story of a mom who took a picture of her child and on the film, I guess she posted it on social media and a friend of her said, oh, The red reflex looks white in one of the eyes. And the mom took this child in. The child ended up having retinoblastoma. It was treated and diagnosed early. The child survived. And so there's this big campaign, you know, know the glow. And it's very important. However, when that story, you know, it became viral and it was all over the news, all over the radio. And so at the time I was a fellow and I would. I was on call and I got a slew of calls from all of my patients, all of a sudden, oh my gosh, my child's, you know, red reflex looks weird in pictures. Do they have retinoblastoma? And I was like, well, you know, your child, the well-established patient, he has, you know, crossed eyes and, and I would have to explain this to them. So even, you know, a misalignment of the eyes is business. Or a significant refractive error can cause asymmetry in the red reflex as well. And those are far, far more common than diagnoses like congenital cataracts or retinoblastoma, but you know, still important and warrant referral.
0: And with the refractive error, is that mostly asymmetric in young newborns or early ages? I worry that, you know, my red reflex exam, if there was, you know, some slight blunting or discoloration, I'm not sure I would pick up on it every time, but I do think I would, you know, pick up asymmetry. Are they usually presenting asymmetrical or if a kid just has really bad bilateral refractive error, is that something that is commonly presenting in newborns?
3: Yeah. So it is unusual to have asymmetric refractive error. So that can be something that's very difficult to diagnose. anisometropia that's the word for two different prescriptions. And the reason is that children don't complain, right? So let's say you have one eye that's 20-20, perfect vision, and the other eye is highly nearsighted and you see, let's say, 2,200. So you've got blurred vision. A child is not going to squint. They're not going to sit close to the board. They're not going to complain. They just use their good eye, right? So that's something that you would never pick up unless you test the vision in each eye individually. Now, that red reflex dullness, that can be very subtle. So if you pick up on that as a pediatrician, kudos, you know, if you notice that the red reflex is more dull in that blurry eye. However, that anisomatropia can be difficult to diagnose. And that's why it's really important when you check visual acuity to cover each eye and test separately. And, you know, when I check visual acuity in the patient's, For adults, you guys have gone in for eye exams. You know, the doctor will give you a little occluder, right? You hold it up over the eye and it's got a hole that opens up so you can see through one eye. Never use that in kids. So you want to completely occlude the eye. I'll I'll put a little sticky patch or a piece of tape because kids are awesome at peeking, right? They're not trying to cheat. They just want to get the answer right. So you got to completely cover the eye and check the vision in each eye separately.
0: And with concern for this asymmetry, other than the retinoscopy, are there other tools that you use in an opto in, in an opto clinic to get a better look at the eye? Or what, what is your next step? Presuming you confirm leukocoria, what, what's the, what's the next diagnostic tool you use?
3: Sure. So I can kind of walk you through my exam and what I do um, in the the clinic, right? So the first thing you want to do on every patient, whether it's an infant or an older child, is you want to check the vital signs of the eye. So the vital signs of the eye are visual acuity, pupils, extraocular movements, eye pressure. So pressure is as simple as, you know, we've got fancy tools that we can actually get the exact eye pressure, but you can just use your two fingers and you softly palpate. The eye should feel like a nice, soft, squishy grape, right? So, vision, pupils, pressure, extraocular movement. So, those are the vital signs of the eye. So, we check those things first. Next, I'm using the slit lamp. So, that's a microscope that I can look at all the different parts of the eye. But as a pediatrician, you most likely don't have a slit lamp in your office perfectly fine. So you can just do an external exam. You can use a flashlight and take a good look and you always start your exam anterior and work your way posterior. So you're going to start looking at the lids and the lashes, then the conjunctiva and the sclera, the cornea, the clear window in the front of the eye, the iris, and then you're last going to look at your lens. And the way that you look at your lens is our direct ophthalmoscope, looking at the red reflex test. So I look at the eye from front to back. Now, without dilating drops, you can really only see about 15% of the eye, right? So all of my patients come in and they say, Dr. Levin, why do you put in dilating drops? Why do I really need the drops today? And I say, well, without the drops, we can only see part of your eye, right? There's about 85% of your eye that we can't see without the drops." So I dilate every patient, every new patient and the dilating drops make the pupil big so that i can see the posterior parts of the eye so i can take a good look at the the lens and the retina and the optic nerve you know the cool thing about the eye it's the only place in the whole body where you can see blood vessels and nerves right so you can really get a good idea about pathology that's going on systemically by looking at the eye so my step would be to go through all of those parts of the exam and then to look at the back part of the eye the retina so if i'm really concerned about leukocoria i want to take a good look at the lens make sure there's no cataract dilate the eye look at the retina look for any tumors in the eye
0: i would love to hear your advice on how to really take a good pediatric eye exam especially it it can be tricky if if a patient doesn't want an eye exam we 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 have to you know it can be a struggle. Do you have some tips or tricks on how to how to successfully complete a pediatric eye exam?
3: Yes, so that can definitely be challenging as many other parts of the pediatric eye exam. Pediatric eye exam can be challenging and I I find it, you know, one of the most fun parts of my job. So, one of my colleagues Dr. Erica Ultra described a pediatric ophthalmologist as part physician, part magician, part clown. I feel like that's probably true, you know, of most fields in, in pediatrics. But really, you know, it's it's important to start. I talked about, you know, the nitty gritty and all the parts of the eye exam, but it's important to start with developing rapport with the patient, right? So if a patient comes in, if I just come right at their eyes and, you know, take a look at them and start shining lights, of course, they're going to cry, Right. So they come in, you know, we'll make some jokes. I'll talk to them about, you know, their favorite cartoons. I tell them I like their shoes. Sometimes you have to be a little silly and funny. So I think taking that time to establish rapport, make a connection with the patient, and make them feel more comfortable is important. The other thing that's really important is, you know, and, and you know this as a pediatrician, but sometimes you can't get all the information that you need in the order that you want. it. So You have to start with what's most important first. So I might not be able to, like an adult, you know, walk in the room, get a chief complaint, pass medical history, present illness, go through the medical history, go through all of the parts like I talked about in order from front to back of the eye, right? You might not have time to do that. So you want to jump to the most important things and get the information that you need. So, you know if the child is really anxious and nervous, and I know that I don't have a lot of time before they just have a total meltdown and start crying on the floor, I'm going to check, you know, look at the red reflex first. You know, I'm going to jump straight to that dilated exam once they're dilated, right? You want to prioritize what are the important parts of the exam. I mentioned before distractions, right? So I have a whole cart that I tug around With full of toys, flashing lights, videos. I like to sing to the children. So, you know, normally it's the wheels on the bus or, you know, twinkle, twinkle. But I had a six year old the other day that I was like, Oh, do you want the itsy bitsy spider? And he's like, No, can you sing the sound of music? So that was a little bit of a. I had to like (laughs) go way back. And, but yeah anything that you can to, I don't know that I sang it well, but I, I, you know, I had to like honor his request, his musical request. So whatever, you know, tricks you have up your sleeve, whether it's, you know, putting on their favorite cartoon or showing them their favorite toy, you know, I have stuffed animals in the office and, you know, basket treasure chest full of prizes. So all of those things can be helpful. As well. And then, you know, sometimes you can't do all of the exam elements that you want. So I've had, you know, some patients that were referred to me, you know, children with developmental delay or even adults that have been very nervous and anxious and upset. And I've had several referrals where, you know, other providers have said, well, you know, I think we need to do an exam under anesthesia. We can't do the exam. And so some, I can count, you know, in the amount of years that I've been doing this, the amount of times I've had to do an exam under anesthesia because I can't get an exam in the office has been one. And, you know, some of the tricks that I'll use are, you know, divided up into several visits. So say, well, is this a bad time of the day, right? Is the the child, you know, easiest to examine right after nap time, right? Do they need their snack, right? I'll put in the note when they come back, no Resident or technician workup, just go straight to the attending so that they're not waiting. Right. Sometimes I'll even prescribe the dilating drops. I tell the parents to dilate the child at home, you know, sneak the drops in while they're sleeping. And when they come in, they're already dilated and the exam's a breeze. So, or, you know, practicing. So I'll practice with the slit lamp. And then when they come back the next time, maybe we can do it. So sometimes it takes a few visits and, you know, a couple different tricks, but you know, we're able to get the information that we need in most cases.
1: When you were saying about like checking for eye pressures, and I was just trying to imagine myself like poking someone's eye. Um, I think it'd be yeah. even difficult for me to I get an adult to let me do that. When
3: I- Yes. I know. I saw you kind of giggling about when I said the squishy grape. I don't know, maybe you're hungry for dinner or something. No. So um, you have the patient close their eyes and you're going to take your both fingers, so two fingers, and you're going to palpate back and forth and the eye should feel nice and soft. So that's a way that you can check pressure in children and it should feel nice and soft. If the patient has glaucoma or high pressure in the eye, it's going to feel rock hard.
1: Wow. That's awesome. That That's a great pearl. I always thought I had to like yeah. make sure i had analge- analgesic eye drops and you know dig up a tona pen from somewhere and try to tap their eyes and never yeah, I can never get those pen things can, work. you
3: know it can be Exactly. That tono pen can be a little scary because you have to numb the eye and you get really close. There's actually a new device out that where you can measure the pressure without anesthetic. So that's something that I'll I'll use to get a more accurate pressure measurement. And it works even in infants. So so that's fantastic. But you know, palpation, you can get a pretty good idea of what the pressure is just by palpating.
0: And so I love this comprehensive kind of how to do an exam, especially over multiple visits and do a dilated eye exam. And, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of think about is if there's certain transportation issues or there are differences in socioeconomic status and, and access to care. And one of the big things on the podcast we do is trying to talk about disparities, whether they are socioeconomic and also racial disparities, gender disparities. Are there specific health inequities that exist around pediatric ophthalmology issues. And can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Absolutely. So there are major health disparities and, you know, it's not limited just to pediatric ophthalmology, but ophthalmology in general. And so we know that there are certain diseases that are higher in black patients and Hispanic patients, diseases like glaucoma are more common. We know that treatment of eye diseases, including cataracts can be delayed. And we know that specifically in pediatric patients that high poverty neighborhoods actually have double the rate of vision problems in children. And, you know, there was a recent study in my hometown of of Baltimore by some of my colleagues where they did these massive vision screenings in Baltimore City public schools of children ages grades three to seven. And they actually screened these children and randomized them to doing these screening exams and receiving free glasses in the school. And they actually found that children that receive glasses through the school vision program had better reading scores. So we know that poor vision or even from things as simple as refractive ears and kids that, you know, don't have access to care or can't afford glasses. This can actually negatively impact them in school. They actually don't do well in school because they can't see. And so, you know, seeing this problem again and again and again, you know, I've been involved in several different organizations. So one of the things'm I'm, I'm the faculty advisor for Healthcare for the Homeless, which is a program in Baltimore where we have homeless individuals come in children and adults and they can receive you know free health services including vision screenings. You know, recently, I was involved as the the chair of Vision services for Project Homeless Connect Baltimore so we had 600 homeless individuals come in and I organized, you know, a bunch of residents and army of medical students and, you know, optometrists and ophthalmologists. We did exams and we actually gave patients glasses that were made on a mobile van. So, a van that actually came into the convention center and patients would get their glasses that day.
0: Wow.
3: And, you know, more recently, I started a fund the angel fund for eye care specifically to get kids free glasses because we know that you know health disparities exist and you know not having the means to purchase glasses or to get an eye exam should not be a reason for a child to not have good vision and be successful. So, you know, unfortunately, these disparities exist. And it's something that as pediatricians and as pediatric ophthalmologists, we really have to to work to 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 help these kids and get them the vision services that they need.
0: Those sound like amazing advocacy projects that are really important. We have a new patient for you in the Cash Black Memorial Children's Hospital Clinic. You have a four year old patient named Straub Isthmus over the past several days, Straub's family has noticed that his left eye has been looking towards his nose while his right eye is straight ahead. This just started when focusing on something at close, but now has really been constant for a couple months. He does have a history of prematurity where he was born at thirty four weeks but has reported you know seeing okay. Let's start by for now we have an individual who's approaching school age. What are the other aspects of the pediatric eye screening for a four-year-old? You talked about it a little bit about some of the vital signs, but what are some issues going on here? What are the common terms for this type of presenting pathology?
3: Right. So the pediatric exams, So now we have a four-year-old, so we can do a lot more with a four-year-old than we could with the infant. So we mentioned with an infant, you know, up to three months, they're just blinking to light. And then after three months, they can start to fix and follow. A four-year-old, you can actually check a visual acuity a little bit more accurately. So a four-year-old might not yet know the letters, but they might be able to identify pictures or they can do picture matching. And so we have... Visual acuity pictures. There's Alan pictures and Leah pictures. They're different symbols. And what I'll do, you know, sometimes a four year old might not want to speak. They might be a little shy. So I'll actually show them all of the pictures and I'll have them point to it on the page. You know, sometimes you need a little coaxing or I'll give them their lollipop magic wand and have them point to the picture, but you can actually get a very accurate measure of the visual acuity, even if they don't yet know their letters. And, you know, other things that you want to do. So we talked about checking all the vital signs of the eye. So just to review, because it's super important, you know, visual acuity, each eye separately, pupils, extraocular movements are pressure by palpation. And now, you know, we're a little bit more concerned about motility, motility or eye movements, right? So this parent noticed that the eye is turning in towards the nose, So, you know, there's two main categories, right? You want to know, is this strabismus? Is this a misalignment of the eyes? Is this due to a muscle problem? Or could this be something more serious, something neurologic, right? So you want to make sure that the motility is full. So for example, you know, when you check the eyes in all six directions and you notice that the eye can't abduct or, you know, move outward, could be a sixth nerve palsy, right? So you want to make sure that the motility is full. So first you're checking the eye movements to make sure that they're full. And then the next thing we want to do is actually to measure the strabismus. And strabismus being the misalignment of the eye. So a few terms that are important to define is strabismus, I mentioned misalignment. Esotropia is a type of strabismus where the eyes turn in exotropia is strabismus where the eyes turn out. And you can have hypertropia, the eye up or hypotropia, the eye down. And you can even have torsional misalignments, right? So the eyes don't just go up and down, they can actually twist. And so you can get torsional misalignment. So that's where my job gets uh, even more fun, right? Twisting eye movements. So the way that we measure the strabismus is by doing cover testing. And so with cover testing, We have a child fixate on a distant object and we cover and uncover the eye. And when you cover and uncover, you'll see the eye shifting to fixate on an object. And I use prisms, which are little pieces of plastic that bend the light. And I continue to add prism until I neutralize the deviation and the eyes no longer are shifting. Right? So I can measure the amount of esotropia. So for example, a child might have 10 prism diopters of esotropia, or they might have 50 prism diopters of esotropia. I can actually quantify the amount, how many degrees the eye is turning using the prisms. And I do this in multiple directions of gaze. Another really important concept in strabismus is cometance. So what cometence means is that this eye misalignment is the same in different directions of gaze right? So a comitant deviation means that the esotropia is 20 straight ahead, 20 when they look up, 20 when they look down, 20 to the left, 20 to the right. That's a comitant deviation versus, let's say, a child that has a sixth cranial nerve palsy. Their esotropia might be 20 when they look to the left and then 10 when they look straight ahead and zero when they look to the right. And it that's incompetent. It means it's different. And so when you see an incompetent strabismus, you think something more neurologic that could be paretic, like a six nerve palsy, or it could be, you know, something like a thyroid eye where the muscles are enlarged. So so there's many, you know, nuances that we have to know as a pediatric ophthalmologist. But but the exam element that's the most important is that cover testing, the alternate cover testing. Now, there are some children that might not cooperate with cover testing. They might not fixate on a distant target. And in which case, you just use what's called the corneal light reflex. So you shine a bright light a couple feet away from the eye, and you want to make sure that that reflex on the cornea is equal and symmetric on both sides right so if the eyes are crossed in the light is going to be perfectly centered in the pupil in one eye and in the other eye it's going to be on the outside it could be you know on the outside of the cornea so you want to make sure that those corneal light reflexes are symmetric
0: and so if you have a patient in front of you that does have clear esotropia that does have clear strabismus can you talk about what that conversation is like with a parent explaining what this means, maybe what the pathophysiology is in layman's terms and why it's important to to treat or kind of what that initial conversation is like to have a parent understand what this diagnosis is and what it means.
3: Yes. Yeah, so there are, you know, a couple really important things that we want to know about the child. So first of all, you know, our primary goal is vision, right? So we want to make sure that the vision is good in both eyes. And what happens in some cases of strabismus is a child can develop what's called strabismic amblyopia. And amblyopia, some people call it lazy eye. It's really lazy brain, right? So it means that the brain is not using the eye. So for example, Justin, if you were to develop esotropia suddenly, right, if something happened and all of a sudden your eyes are crossing, you would get double vision, right? One eye is looking in left, one eye is looking right. You see double. You see two images. Children do not get double vision, usually, right, if it's a longstanding strabismus, because they develop what's called suppression. So their brain can shut off the visual signal to one eye. And so a child with strabismus is either using the left eye or the right eye, but not both at the same time. And what happens is the brain will usually pick one eye to use. So for example, the brain might say, I'm just going to use the left eye and I'm going to let the right eye cross. And over time, they develop amblyopia. They're not using that right eye. So it's not a lazy eye, it's the brain, right? And they've actually done studies where they've taken kittens, right? They would shut one eye of the kitten, patch one eye shut. And then later they would look at the brain. The lateral geniculate nucleus was atrophied. So you can get actual brain damage from not using the visual system. So first we have to determine, does the child have amblyopia? Is the strabismus causing poor vision, right? And the number one priority is to treat the amblyopia. And we do that a couple different ways. So to treat amblyopia, you can either patch, right? So you patch the good eye. So, you know, it depends on the level. And we have evidence-based studies that guide our management. There's this big group of pediatric ophthalmologists that created the Pediatric Eye Disease Investigator Group. And we have a bunch of different studies. I think we're up to, you know, PDIG study number 17 now. But basically, the the treatment that we do is all guided by evidence-based practice and randomized controlled clinical trials, right? So back in the day, right, if I have a patient maybe who's in their 40s and they had amblyopia, they would do full-time patching, right? You patch an eye full-time, that good eye becomes the bad eye because they don't use it, right? So then they did studies looking at, you know, six hours a day. And so now we know exactly how many hours of patching to do based on the vision and if the amblyopia is mild, moderate, or severe. So, you know, in most cases, we're starting patching about two hours a day, right? And we're patching the good eye. And I always explain it to the parents, just like exercise. When you go to the gym, you know, you're doing your, your reps, you're doing your exercise. So you want to cover or patch the good eye to force the weaker eye to work. You force the brain to use the eye. Right. So that's the first step. So you want to find out if there's amblyopia. And then you want to know if there's something treatable. So in some cases, a child who has crossed eyes may simply just need glasses. Right. There's a type of strabismus called accommodative esotropia or focus crossing where the eyes uncross if you put them in the proper glasses. Right. So you want to treat things like amblyopia. You want to, with patching, and in some cases, we'll use drops to treat amblyopia. You want to, you know, see if they need glasses if they have refractive error. And then in some cases, the child may end up needing eye muscle surgery. And so, you know, there's three indications or three reasons that we do eye muscle surgery. So one is to improve eye contact and communication. So, you know, it's not cosmetic, it's to make the patient have good eye contact. So when they're communicating, you think about children that are getting teased in school, people don't know which eye they're looking with. So eye muscle surgery can improve eye contact so they can better communicate with peers and for children and adults. Two is to prevent double. So in some cases, especially in adult strabismus or children that have a sudden onset strabismus, they may have double vision. So that surgery can help, you know, treat the double. And then the third is to have depth perception or stereopsis. So in order to have 3D vision or depth perception, both eyes need to be focused in the same direction, right? And I see, Chris, you're shutting one eye and the other. So if you're only using one eye at a time, you don't have 3D vision. So stereopsis is 3D vision, and so in order to have 3D vision, both eyes need to be working together. And stereo vision or 3D vision is something that develops when you're young. So we have sort of a short window between those connections between in the eye and the brain being solid. And at that point, you can't change it. And so that's one of the reasons that it's really important to diagnose and treat strabismus and amblyopia early because we don't want to miss the window of having that child have the ability to have a stereopsis and see 3 d
0: can I ask a clarifying question? The Sorry, amblyopia is, you said it's important to identify if that is occurring. That is just a vis- visual acuity test. Is that correct?
3: Exactly. So amblyopia um, is decreased vision and it can happen. There's really three different types of amblyopia. So there's strabismic amblyopia. So that's the the type that we just discussed. So when the eyes are misaligned, the brain shuts off the vision in one eye. It just uses the other eye, the straight eye. That's called strabismic amblyopia. The second type of amblyopia is refractive. So just like we had mentioned earlier, a child that has good vision in one eye and the other eye has a really strong refraction, right? They're either nearsighted or farsighted. The brain doesn't use that eye because the vision is blurred. So that's called refractive amblyopia. And the third type of amblyopia is called deprivation amblyopia. So for deprivation amblyopia, there's a structural issue that's depriving the patient of vision. So that could be ptosis, a droopy eyelid. It could be a congenital cataract, right? It could be an infection or something in the retina, like we talked about retinoblastoma. And so, you know, the treatment for those three things is very different because if a patient has a structural issue, so for example, you know, an infantile cataract, we have to treat that within the first few weeks or months of life or that patient can have permanent amblyopia or damage to the visual system. So those are, you know, the refractive, the strabismic, and the deprivation amblyopia.
1: So you were saying earlier that the amblyopia, you sort of categorize into mild, moderate and severe, right? What what exactly is like the prognosis? Yeah. So if you if they're mild, then if you're able to treat the one thing, whether it's trabismus or it's uh, retinoblastoma, if you have that treated, then they're likely going to do well uh, versus like moderate, like, is it 50-50? Like, wh- what does that look like? And how do you talk to the parents about that?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, mild, moderate, and severe has to do with the level of visual acuity, and all levels are very treatable. And the key is early diagnosis, right? So the earlier, the better. If you wait too long, those connections are solid, and it's too hard to change, and compliance. And this is something that can be very challenging. So patient education and even more parent education is super important for amblyopia, right? So you tell a parent you need to put an eye patch on your screaming toddler two hours a day. You know, that's not easy. I have a two-year-old, right? So education is super important. And, you know, I have a Patch Pals program. So when my kids come in, And I counsel them on amblyopia and patching. I give them a teddy bear with a patch on it on the same eye that they're going to patch. Some of the tricks I say are, you know, the whole family can patch together. I have colorful patches with, you know, whatever pattern they like. I have, you know, some kids that are artistic, they'll decorate their patches. I also will give out a patching poster. So I have a rewards poster and I tell the, the kid every day, you know, when you, you get a sticker on your poster and when you come in to see me, I have a special prize box for, you know, when you bring in your, your patching poster completed, you get a special prize for me, right? You know, positive reinforcement. So it takes a lot of education. And so, you know, you have to really counsel the families and involve them because we know that better compliance leads to better outcomes. And there's also studies that show that better education leads to better compliance, which is better outcomes. So educating the family and really spending that time, making sure that they understand why they're patching and why it's important is super important. So, you know, health literacy and patient education is a big area of interest for me. It's I do a lot of research in in this topic, and you know, specifically in in retinopathy and prematurity with with newborn infants. But one of the next projects that I wanted take on is really improving health literacy and understanding of amblyopia in families. So I'm going to work with some students to create an educational video with kids, like talking about patching and how awesome it is and why it's important so you really have to get the family on board because it, children really do, you know, you're, you're talking about the prognosis. The prognosis can be excellent, right? We got kids going from severe amblyopia 2200 to perfect 2020 vision when they have, they're actually doing their patching and they have families that are compliant. So that that's super important.
1: Awesome.
0: I love the idea of the prize blots. I feel like that can work for a lot of different treatments.
3: It's amazing. My, my, our dentist office has a prize box and my daughter loves going to the dentist. So, you know, it's the little plastic, whatever, airplane or bouncy ball or whatever. It makes all the difference. You know, when I'm examining the kiddos, you know, and, and the lollipops and the stickers, all those things, it's it's incredible what, you know, a little toy will do. It goes a long way.
1: That's great.
0: Amazing. Looking based on time, you know, we've covered a lot of material and I know there's some other quick question we want to go through. Chris, what do you say we do some some rapid fire questions?
1: Yeah, so some of these are gonna sort of be just I think these are just like myths and stuff that we hear and since we have you here, it'd be great to ask. So actually the first one I wanna ask is, Will blue light ruin my kids' eyes?
3: Great question. I get this question all the time. I'll try to do this rapid because this is rapid fire. Blue light is part of the visible light spectrum. It has not ever been shown to be harmful or to damage the eyes, right? We know UV light is bad. Blue light kind of gets a bad rep, right? But there's no studies that show that it's harmful to the eyes or the vision. What blue light we do know can affect um, mood, right? And it can affect sleep cycles, circadian rhythms. So you don't want a whole lot of blue light before bed because you won't be able to fall asleep, right? The sun gives us energy. It boosts our mood. That blue light gives us energy, but it's not harmful to the eyes or the vision. So you don't need to waste your money on blue light glasses. Instead, if you're staring at the screen a lot, have your kids blink. Follow the 20-20-20 rule every 20 Minutes take a 20 second break and look 20 feet away. Give your eyes a rest to avoid eye strain, but save your money from those blue light glasses. Cool, 2020, I like it. it. Use it before sleep, you know, so that you're not getting stimulated before bed.
1: I like it. Yeah,
0: I, I, here's a broad question speaking of colors, let's go from blue to red. Red flags, what are you like that said, right, Chris? What are the red flag symptoms that immediately? need to give me some heart palpitations what are the big red flags in pediatric ophthalmology
3: Red flags in terms of symptoms, like I talked about objection to occlusion. If you cover one eye and the kid gets really upset and they start crying, that's a red flag that they have poor vision in the eye. Other red flags, so things, we didn't get into this, nasolacrimal duct obstructions of tearing, right? One of the most common things that a pediatrician sees, very benign, but there is a mimic that is very vision threatening, which is congenital glaucoma. Right. So congenital glaucoma presents with a triad of frequent blinking, enlargement of the cornea, and tearing. Right. So if a child has frequent tearing, frequent blinking, you know, don't just write it off. Check for some of those other signs and symptoms. Palpate the eye. Check the pressure. Right. That. Yep. There you go. I see you palpating there. So, you know, tearing, you know, tearing of both eyes and large cornea. That's a red flag because, you know, tearing, nasal lacrimal duct obstruction, benign glaucoma, not benign, vision threatening.
1: Awesome. Here's one that I get all the time. Well, I don't get all the time, but I think it comes up often enough that I feel that maybe I should know better a kid comes in you know a baby you know maybe Asian has epicanthal folds and resident comes to me and says I think a little cross-eyed and I look and I was like I think yes. it's just their epicanthal folds are there any tips or tricks that you, we could use like in the office I mean obviously a, a good exam like you sort of taught us already like is there any other things that yeah. I uh, we can think about
3: Perfect. Excellent question. Pseudoesotropia is something that I see at least once a day, right? So pseudoesotropia is the appearance of esotropia. You mentioned a- Asian babies. It's more common with an Asian eyelid, but the child has a wide nasal bridge and epicanthal fold. It actually covers up the sclera, the white part of the eye and makes the eyes look crossed. The way you tell the difference between pseudoesotropia and true esotropia is, is number one, look at your corneal light reflex. Shine the light about two to three feet away, and that light should be perfectly centered in both eyes, right? So if the light reflex is symmetric, the eyes are straight. And then the second thing you wanna do is the cover-uncover test. And just a quick plug, if you go to aao.org backslash medical-students, there's a website that a group of educators and I created have a video there on the pediatric eye exam or you can just go to YouTube and look up the pediatric eye exam and type my name in Ronnie Levin MD. And you'll see there's a video of me examining my daughter. And I actually teach you how, you know, in five minutes, how to do a basic pediatric eye exam, including the, the cover on cover. So the two things you want to check the corneal light reflex and your alternate cover testing and when in doubt refer, right? If you're not sure if you think there might be true business, I never mind seeing, you know, a cute baby with, you know, wide nasal bridge and epicanthal folds and telling the parents that the Eyes are normal, hooray! Because about 10% of pseudo strabismus patients can go on to develop strabismus. So, not a bad idea to plug them in.
0: Awesome. Those are nice plugs. We'll, we'll put those links in the show notes. That's great. All right. So, let's say I'm doing an urgent care clinic and a patient's coming in who was in a, a baseball game and got hit by a ball right in the eye. And so, parents are worried because of trauma to the eye. What is your initial trauma assessment? What are things that I am looking for that would make me worried or that maybe could provide some reassurance.
3: Right, so vision, pupils, and doing a, a muscle light exam. So you're, you know, that dad out on the baseball field and another kid gets hit in the eye and is there a doctor in the house and you come running? Check that child's vision, right? You don't have to have like a fancy eye chart, but just cover one eye, make sure they can count your fingers, use a muscle light, check the pupils, make sure that they're symmetric. And looking at, you can even use the light on the back of your, your smartphone, right? And just check if you see any obvious eye pathology. If you see bleeding in the front of the eye, that's called a hyphema. Or if there's a subconjunctival hemorrhage or there's anything concerning, send that patient to an ophthalmologist or to the emergency department because you do not want to miss a ruptured globe, right? So if there's a significant eye injury or bleeding in the eye, that's something that will need immediate surgical surgical attention, right? Right. But if the child can see well, the structures of the eye look look good. Their pupils are equal, reactive, and they're pretty comfortable. You know, then you can be assured that there's not a serious injury.
1: Great. And I think my last question I'm going to ask is: every time I look in note I I can never remember O S O D O U. How do I, how do I remember this? I then there are many other abbreviations, but at least I I think I feel like I should know those three.
3: We have so many, far too many abbreviations in medicine. And so the good thing is with electronic medical records, I think things are some of those abbreviations are going away. Like my electronic medical record, if I put OS or OD, I get like an alert and it will correct me. So to the point where an OD is, you know, a a doctor of optometry, I get an alert and it won't even let me put an OD because it won't, you know, Epic does not let me do it. Right. And I'm like, no, I I mean a doctor of optometry, not the right eye. So I don't have a good answer for how to remember all those abbreviations, but I strongly think that we should do away with it because medical Medicine should not be, you know, this language of hieroglyphics that you can't decode and you have to think about which eye is this, which eye is that. I think that we as physicians have to work to make our documentation more clear so that we can communicate with each other better.
0: Before we wrap up, Tristan do you want to ask your favorite question about future stuff?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, thanks for reminding me. Yeah. So one of my favorite questions I asked before, before yeah, we I love that Finish question. an episode is, so what, what, what do you know about the future? Like, what does the future hold? What are the cool things that we're seeing up ahead?
3: Um, There is... There's so many new advances in ophthalmology. So, you know, I feel like ophthalmologies were a little nerdy and we're very into technology. So, you know, the future of ophthalmic surgery, you know, lasers, we've got robotic surgeries, you know, 3D surgery. So there's a lot of cool stuff in the horizon. I think, you know, one of the innovations specifically in pediatric ophthalmology that I'm super excited about is the ability to do telemedicine. So, you know, I screen infants every week. Part of, you know, one of the most important part of my jobs is I go to the NICU and I screen infants for retinopathy of prematurity. And there's a lot of places in the world that don't have access. There's very few... Pediatric ophthalmologists. There's not enough of us, right? There's far more premature infants than there are pediatric ophthalmologists. And there's remote parts, you know, of the country and of the world that don't have access and babies going blind due to, you know, premature eye disease. So one of the most exciting innovations, I think, in, in pediatric ophthalmology is the use of telemedicine. And tele-ROP screening, so something that's widely been used in India, and even there's parts of the U.S. where they're using this more and more. So, you know, you can picture in a small rural NICU where the closest pediatric ophthalmologist is 200 miles away, you can train, you know, a photographer or nurse to take pictures of babies' retinas and then send the babies that have, you know, retinopathy prematurity to see the specialist. So I think this is going to be a huge innovation in saving lots of kids' vision, and I'm super excited about it.
1: That's pretty awesome. Robots and lasers. We actually have something. So in my adult clinic, we actually have a diabetic retinopathy machine that does take pictures of my patients who are in our underserved population, population where they don't have access to eye care. We just take pictures of their eye in my clinic, and they get sent to our ophthalmologist to read. So I'm pretty excited about that
3: amazing. Yeah. Those vision screeners and, and, you know, ability to take photos. I think that's really the future. And I never mind, you know, even the camera, the technology and the cameras, you can take a really good picture of the eye, you know, using a smartphone. So I never mind getting, you know, pictures from pediatricians and, you know, hey, does this eye look funny? And there is, you know, Justin was mentioning some apps. So there, there's apps where you can actually take pictures of, of retinas, right? There's cameras where you can take pictures of the retina. So I think that, you know, this, this use of digital imaging is really the way of the future and it's going to just really improve patient care and even access for those that that have poor access to care.
0: Awesome. This has been great. A lot of great coverage. As a kind of closing question, any big take-home points or any big things that you want to plug other resources to share with our listeners?
3: Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned, I'm part of the American Academy of Ophthalmology Medical Student Education, Virtual Education Committee. And so we have this great website, which, you know, you can share with your listeners, aao.org backslash medical-students. So... We've worked to create these great interactive patient cases. So one of our cases actually is leukocoria. So I have a pediatrics case. I highly recommend you check it out. And there's six short videos that go over, you know, one about strabismus and amblyopia, one about leukocoria, many of the topics that we've covered in a really simple and straightforward way. So I really recommend that you check those out. It's a great review of some of the more pediatric, more common pediatric eye disease conditions.
0: Awesome. Cool. Hey, thank you so much for joining the show. This was this was helpful. This was great. I can see clearly now for all of the (laughs) strabismus and other cases that come into our clinic and I I I think this is going to be great oh yeah we'll have we'll put more in the intros and outro for sure
3: (laughs) okay Um, awesome love it well thank you guys so much for having uh, me and I you know hopefully if this can can even help a couple of kids by learning how to check the red reflex or picking up some red flags then you know I'm so glad that we did this
0: absolutely thank you for your time thank you thank you
3: thanks so much guys have a great night
2: This has been another episode of The Cribsiders.
1: It's for the kids.
2: (laughs) Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website, www.thecribsiders.com.
1: We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Edward Cordy, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This has been Chris the Chew Man Chew.
2: I've been Edward Cordy.
1: Thank you, and good night, and have a good one. See y'all. See you later.
0: <laughs> hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by BCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.